How does someone make an impact? What makes a person fight back against a government's complete blindness to an epidemic ravaging a community begging for help? Where does a man find the will to get an angry community together to bring attention to those being ignored and to act up? You have power. Your power is your voice. Michelangelo Signorelli presents The Life of Larry Kramer. Larry Kramer was perhaps the most influential person in AIDS activism and among the most important in all of the LGBT community's activism in history. He sounded the alarm on AIDS in the early 80s when so many in the government, the media, and in the gay community were in denial about it for various reasons, not wanting to deal with a profound health crisis in their midst. Larry, uh, who died on May 27th, had already jarred much of the gay male community in 1978 with his novel Faggots, a searing satirical novel that became an instant bestseller and hit on a cultural moment. It pointed to the gay sexual culture of the time in ways that some people found too raw and moralistic, even as it was brutally honest and passionate and touched on so many people's lives. Larry had previously been a successful screenwriter and had been nominated for an Academy Award for the film Women in Love, but it was in the 80s when his talent as a dramatist converged with his passion to bring attention to AIDS when he wrote the renowned play The Normal Heart, founded Gay Men's Health Crisis, and later Act Up, the group which changed the trajectory of AIDS and the whole entire gay movement, bringing us right to marriage equality by pushing people to get out in the streets and be more vocal and be out. Larry Kramer was an inspiration to me when I was in ACT UP and on all of my writing, a dear friend and a mentor when I was a writer at Outweek Magazine, supporting me in controversial work I had been engaged in and taking on closeted public figures. He was someone who was tough, but he also could be very caring and always a great friend. It's an honor today to interview his husband, David Webster, an architect who has been an enormous impact on the life of Larry Kramer, his work and his activism. This is David Webster's first interview, and I'm so glad he's decided to speak with all of us about it. He'll be joining us in a couple of minutes. Michelangelo Signorelli presents The Life of Larry Kramer. Michelangelo Signorelli presents The Life of Larry Kramer. I'm really honored to be speaking to David Webster, who is the husband of Larry Kramer, activist and playwright and one of the most powerful and brilliant organizers in the LGBT community, in any community, at galvanizing people to stand up and speak out, and certainly his enormous impact on the AIDS epidemic. None of us would be where we are, or certainly the world would not be where it is without Larry Kramer. David Webster is an architect and designer, principal architect at David Webster and Associates, and he has been married to Larry Kramer since 2013, but their relationship goes way, way back. And I, again, am so honored to have him speaking to me today on Larry Kramer's what would be his 85th birthday. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael Angel. This is, uh, for me, also an honor. Nice that uh-huh. it's, uh, it's on his birthday as well. I think he would see it the same way. <laughs> and during this time, 
when we're seeing protests all across the country, people galvanized and, of course, a time when we are dealing with a pandemic once again, uh, that Larry was again at the forefront putting pressure on people about. It's just uh, an amazing time to talk about him. Also tragic, you know, because he was the one who even in then the time that we were together where we would occasionally um, go uh, and he would speak um, or uh, even at a cocktail party at Ann Brown's in Washington, D.C., standing talking to Tony Fauci and his wife and kids. And Larry couldn't, couldn't resist saying, so what about the plague? It is a plague. And um, no, one, no one acknowledged that. That, that, was, that was always amazing to me. Wow. I want to talk about so much of his work and his activism, and it really was very intertwined with your relationship, which goes way back. And it really is very interesting how so much of your relationship inspired him in his work (laughs) and (laughs) would come back again and again and again. And so much of his life is in his work. And so much of his life is in, obviously, in his activism and his work was his activism. Activism was work. It was really quite enormous. You and Larry met going back to the 60s, although you didn't. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, You wouldn't get involved (laughs) until later. No, we met, uh, I was um, working on a master's degree in restoration architecture at Columbia and um, had put off uh, an assignment which involved using a piece of art in a building. And so I was at the Metropolitan Museum sitting on a bench taking notes, and this person kept walking in front of me. So I um, signaled him over and I said, I, I, know what, I know what you're doing and I don't have time for this. Um, you want to talk? Um, I used other words, <laughs> stronger. Uh, meet me at the information booth when the museum closes. So at five, when I went downstairs, he was waiting. He said, okay, let's go talk. And so we went and had a coffee and then um, liked, talked, whatever, each other. And I then um, invited him back to the um, apartment I had on East 62nd Street um, and um, ended up in a loft bed. And that was the meeting. He lived in London, which I, you know, remember him telling And me. how old were you both then? He was in his 30s. I was in my 20s. So there's 12 years between us. Mm-hmm. And um, this was before the success with his Academy Award nomination and everything else. Right. And he had been uh, nominated for Women in Love. He was a screenwriter at the time. He was, yes, and also a producer. You know, as the um, setup was in England because of the destruction uh, during the Second World War, uh, England put a 50 pence tax on every movie seat sold. So it was sort of the golden rebirth era for English studios. And everybody went, America went. So United Artists, Columbia, all were around Soho Square. That was kind of where they were set up. Mm-hmm. And um, Larry was offered a position and um, went at that time to work for one of the studios. And then he was good. Um, he wrote and did his own productions in, on the side, which people did do, and um, was part of a young group of people who were excited to be making movies. And also, you know, made a group of friends that he stayed connected to 
his whole life. So it was 68 when you met. 69 yeah. is Stonewall and the, the sort of explosion of the gay movement, a revolution, political movement, activism. And then, of course, a community that was much more open and out and Fire Island in the 70s. Is that when you would reconnect again? Yes, we, yeah, we reconnected at a dinner party in the Pines. On Fire Island. Yeah, on Fire Island, which would have been probably 75, maybe. And got asked to this dinner party and um, sat uh, between Larry and another fellow and uh, talked to both. And um, Larry, at the end of it, he said, well, you know, can I call you? And I was, however, probably more interested in the other fellow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Said to Larry, sure, you can call me. And the other fellow was going to Canada and was going to come back and we were going to talk. And I got a call from a guy who said we were together. Now I think we're into October. Uh, everybody's back in New York. And uh, I had told her I'd call, so why don't we, you know, get together? I said, great, terrific. And invited him to the apartment that I had in Chelsea. Opened the door, and it wasn't the man who went to Canada, but it was Larry. (laughs) 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 And and came in and had a nice time. I, you know, had dinner, and um, yes, we, uh, I smoked grass, so yes, we got stoned and had a nice evening. But things didn't work out. That didn't work out the way Larry wanted it to work out, uh, and there would eventually be a, scene, a big scene. <laughs> no, you know, the, the, yeah, it it was interesting because from that point, um, we then interacted a lot and um, spent a lot of time together. And I loved Larry's mind. That was what what really was fabulous about him, and. Um, we just never ended having things to talk about. There was always more to talk about. And as you talk, you, you also listen. And so I got to observe this very complex person. And I was, I was, I, he was unusual because he wasn't as all of the other people that I had met or interacted with. He had a whole lot of uh, sort of operated on different levels. And, um, I needed to know if he was if he was really crazy. <laughs> and so my best friend who had um a house that I had made in New Jersey out of two barns uh and was a doctor, I arranged that we would all go to have dinner. So we drove to New Jersey and um had dinner and the doctor who ran at that time Bronx Lebanon Hospital and had been the guy who was in the the um, organization of a movie called Fort Apache, which was another South uh, Bronx hospital, um, said to me, yes, yes, very smart, definitely crazy, good luck. (laughs) 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 But I think, you know, as you, I'm sure, can uh, attest, crazy is important if you're going to really break um, right, but, but and challenge it, traditions and move things forward. But you weren't ready for what he w- was ready for. He wanted to have a relationship, and you wanted a relationship, but not the same kind. And he correct. 
exploded and it's quite a scene that he would eventually tell over and over again. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yes. write as well. <laughs> yes. And that was Faggots, That's which right. was the book that he wasn't writing when he and I first got together. He, he was, well, I don't know what the book was, but he claimed he was writing a book and, um, or had started, done the notes and had decided he was going to go to Italy. That was uh, where we started. Uh, he didn't. And um, as we dated, because we dated, he spent time in my space, and so I would leave to go to work, and Larry would stay in my apartment. And unbeknownst to me, he went through everything. <laughs> Files, um, uh, drawers, anything. All of which I learned when I, in fact, read Faggots. <laughs> right. Is the book published in 1978, a novel that was the biggest-selling gay novel ever. Uh, it became a bestseller right away. It was a satirical, searing book that uh, a lot of people also saw as very moralistic against the gay scene mm -hmm. in Fire Island. Yeah. Yeah. It was a man looking for love and telling his story and, and yeah. being angry about uh, a lot of what was going on. And your life was laid out in there. <laughs> your, your life, literally all aspects of it, including your sexual life. What was that like? Shocking, surprising, mm -hmm. and also the people who were in the book called because they they recognized themselves or Dennis the slave, for example. Um, that was that was I I thought uh, sort of a violation of privacy, which I confronted Larry about, and he said, "Well, you, you know, a, a writer is a writer." That's what a writer is supposed to do, tell the whole story, even if it means violating certain confidences. And you had broken up by then. Uh, and uh, yes, yes. Um, over, over the starting differences. Starting at the punch yeah. in the, um, <laughs> at the you know, steps of the pantry in the pines. Right, because he wanted a committed mm -hmm. monogamous relationship. And you wanted something else. I didn't want to commit, which was perhaps the problem that a lot of sexually liberated men were having at that time. I wanted to experience what was available to experience. Yes, we mm -hmm. smoked grass. Yes, we used poppers. Yes, we... I mean, I loved acid trips in Central Park on Sunday afternoon, <laughs> you know, and those were things that, that Larry didn't, didn't want to do. Larry was very concerned about maintaining self-control. Right. Now, he wasn't very politically active at that time in terms of the gay rights movement, but he certainly was making a point with the novel, and certainly, as I said, uh, it angered a lot of people. Mm -hmm. He by... came back from California very disillusioned. Uh, I don't know if you and he ever spoke about that, but he loved movies. From the beginning as a kid, he used to hide out in movies. Um, his father was not very nice to him, and um, they lived as in his present second part of the American people. He talks about a small um, town 
outside of Washington, D.C., which had a movie theater, and he would take his um, allowance or his babysitting money and um, go there and um, sort of disappear. So when he had this great experience in England, which culminated with uh, Women in Love's Academy Award nomination, which was given to Ring Lauder because he wrote MASH and had never gotten anything and who was, you know, Kramer, etc. He still was hot. And um, Ross Hunter of, you know, Doris Day, Rock Hudson fame, when you're successful, was told he could make his own thing. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And this man had the fantasy of producing a spectacular around Lost Horizon. And... um, Mm -hmm. He picked Larry up as the property writer that he wanted and said, I want you, gave him uh, this enormous amount of money, which was significant at that time, like outrageous, and said, write me the screenplay, which, you know, had Lee Ullman and John Gilgood and mm-hmm. this, this incredible cast. And, and it seemed to always, when it was finally done, produced, shown ran if you you know go into a bookstore that lists movies it gets pretty much the universal agreed worst movie ever made (laughs) (laughs) much to larry's frustration and the i think joy that he got working in england in this industry and the camaraderie that he felt he came back and it was awful in hollywood the the right. moguls, the way it was run, the way people treated each other, the way people basically didn't care about the movie as much as what the bottom line cost was going to make them in the end. It was He hated it. He hated it. And so he came back to New York um, really unhappy. And his brother um, suggested that he go talk to um, uh, a psychiatrist, Sam Clagsburn. And um, he did. And Sam said, you know, what do you want to do? And he he said, I think I want to write. Sam said, okay, then write. That's the beginning. And um, Arthur said, I'll take this big chunk of change, and um, I'll, I'll invest it for you. Larry said, okay. The, the so, chunk of change meaning? The money he oh, got. Oh, the money from the film. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's how he managed to become independent. So, right. Uh, of course, refer to his brother, who plays into so much of his work as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a prominent attorney and an investor who helped him to um, invest and make money. Yeah. And who never accepted throughout, and this is this is in his work and in uh, The Normal Heart and elsewhere, never accepted him being gay, just as his father didn't as well. I want to get into after uh, Faggots, uh, because this is when we start to see all of that. Larry becomes more politicized over the AIDS epidemic, mushrooming. Go back, though, when he came back <clears throat> and, and was set up and talked to the shrink, he decided to be gay. He didn't. The movie business required you to have a beard. Do you remember right. when all that was necessary? Sure. Theater till still today, sometimes with backers and things, requires people to have beards. He went through it in London. He came back to the United States. He had to play the game. You went to a party. You had to have a date. So when he came back, he didn't need to do that. He came to New York and Sam said, be gay. So he embraced being gay. That's where it started. So gay became his people. And right. from that, he pitched everything to being gay, not hiding. And so his criticisms in Faggots, 
which you could say was also starting in the political way. Um, right. He picked someone like Barry Diller, who was a successful movie mogul, who was gay, who had a certain type and a certain image, and, um, and wasn't closet. out, wasn't yes, yeah. available for the high school senior who was on the track team or played football to be able to see, okay, here's a masculine guy who in every area mass satisfies whatever image men are supposed to satisfy, and no role model, no available, yes, supportive privately, yes, did things for gay people privately. Larry wanted out men to be available for you to see. For you right. to be a high school senior who says, hey, hey, hey you know, uh, I could do this. It would be right. okay. That was where it started. And when faggots wasn't received the way he thought it would be received by the gay people, sold well, did all those things, but not in the way he expected, he was frustrated. He was not allowed to join the Violet Quill that was this little gay group that... Um, had Literary figures. Cano yeah. and Ed White, and they sort of blackballed him because they didn't like his book because it was critical. And it played completely into then what started to happen to all our friends. The next step, they got sick. Right. You know, um, Paul Poppins' friend who was my friend I used to work out with, Jack Now, you know, started to complain in the gym that he had some gum issues. He was the display director for Bloomingdale's on Long Island. And Ben um, Paul went on to have a succession of partners, all of who died, as we know from uh, The Normal Heart. And so he was, Larry was, you know, in the middle of it, like the next chapter, I told you so. <laughs> and he began to speak out, and yeah. he wrote those powerful essays in yeah. The Native. Yes. And they were, too, responded to in the gay community with uh, a lot of outrage and derision. People yes. were saying, he's trying to do it again. Yes. He's trying to shame us. Uh, and, and so he was trying to wake up the gay community. He was also trying to wake up people in the government, people in the media. He was trying to wake up everybody. Yes. And then... And we had a homophobic president. Yeah. Right. And he didn't want to be wakened, uh, awakened. He didn't... You know, right. No. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Yes. And, so and we had a homophobic he, mayor. Right. Who didn't want to know about this whole thing. And who was closeted and gay. Ed yes. Cott. And Larry would go on to found Gay Men's Health Crisis. And of course, he... And this is all in the normal heart, and he's mm -hmm. written about it. He was never happy with the way that others in the group wanted to go about pressuring the government. Larry had his way. He wanted it to be loud. He wanted it to be, you know, putting the most pressure you could possibly put on people. Eventually, that leads to act up. But I'm wondering, where where were you and he in that point? What was your relationship like at that time? Oh, we didn't talk. Well, I didn't see Larry... For 17 years. Right. You, ever since that, that So I day, met someone, that... uh, which I was told by Larry I wouldn't, who I fell in love with. And um, uh, as this all played out, he ran my business, um, and we were together 24-7 and was happy. I just watched what went on. 
Right. But and I so, wasn't an activist. I wasn't um, fighting those fights. Unfortunately, uh, my partner contracted AIDS and um, died in um, February of 1993, which was before there was the cocktail. There was only the pro. There was only the um, uh, possibility of um, taking um, a very stringent drug, which basically killed the people who took it. And so the normal heart he wrote uh, based on those years of 81 through 84, mm -hmm. trying to organize people, trying to wake people up, mm -hmm. uh, founding gay men's health crisis, unhappy with the way they want to go about it, unhappy with the government. And it opens at the uh, public theater in 1985. It's searing and it is powerful. It's enormously well received. He is seen as this playwright who is bringing this message that is, you know, couldn't couldn't get that message across in, a, in other ways, through political yep. ways, but through drama, it did it. It got it through. And it was enormous. Talk a little bit about the power of that play and talk about your sort of watching all this from afar. The power of the play also is built on the times, which is important to, to understand. And um, the character that is afraid of his doorman seeing the return address on the mailer is indicative of what really was going on. And there was, which we talked about too, a, a, a point where Yay was becoming and had possibly by the time the play certainly came out, a group of people that were consumers that had the next generation, had jobs that were substantial, had uh, positions in banking, had positions in advertising positions in all different corporations, and we're a voting population. And um, this was just starting to emerge, and the people with these positions didn't know what to do. They didn't know if they, uh, like the Paul Popham character, uh, were publicly known. Uh, would they lose their jobs? Would they keep their jobs? They were not the people who were active in the Stonewall riots. Those were the Hispanic and the drag queens who had gone to a bar to hang out. And finally, they had nothing to lose when the cops pushed them around. And the kids who hung out in the, in the park, the ones who'd run away from home, who you know, sort of were all, all were there, and none of them had anything to lose. And that's when the Stonewall riot really happened, not the substantially set up gay guys. They really were the fighters. So Larry, Larry came along and starts to agitate in the play. He talks about, you know, the mayor who's doing nothing, how to do these things. And the characters in the play all had jobs, all had things to lose. And Larry, as I explained, had a private income, had the freedom to, to, to be this, this fighting guy, this guy who said, fuck you, you know, we need to do this. And the unhappiness that um, he felt and was made to feel by his cohorts, by the people he had brought together to form gay men's health crisis, was very, was, was very difficult. Watching all this in the play, which, of course, I went to see at the public theater, ironically, with the man who said Larry was crazy, Dr. Ira Lubell, um, of course... Uh, um, made the whole audience 
react, cry, um, and respond. Um, I think I think it. I know it was said to be, and Joe Papp over and over said it was the fa- his favorite piece that he put on. Um, and um, it still, however, didn't change things, which was what Larry hoped the play would do. It still was uphill. No one declared that AIDS was a plague, you know, and um, Game and Health Crisis became more sort of a, a facilitator to help people. It didn't, it didn't do what ACT UP needed to do. Right. My guest is David Webster, and the topic of the moment, Larry Kramer, the powerful writer, activist, playwright, uh, who died on May 27th. We're talking about his life with his husband, David Webster. We're going to continue our discussion in a couple of minutes. Michelangelo Signorelli presents The Life of Larry Kramer. Michelangelo Signorelli presents The Life of Larry Kramer. I'm speaking with David Webster, uh, who is uh, someone who was married to Larry Kramer, the great and really uh, powerful playwright and activist since 2013, but we've been talking about their life going way, way back. David In 1987, Larry founded ACT UP through a speech they gave at the LGBT Community Center in New York. And it was, as you were describing earlier, part of the frustration he felt after writing The Normal Heart, it had enormous impact, but it just didn't do what he wanted it to do. And he realized there needed to be another level, activism in the street, taking on the government, pushing really hard. Talk a little bit about that. I think that uh, how it evolved, he would say there was, he had no plan. He just needed to make gay people understand that they needed to fight for their life. And AIDS was still termed a gay disease. And in fact, that was all incorrect, that it was a disease like the pandemic we're having now that eventually has affected the entire world. And Larry viewed it as a plague, and he was trying to galvanize everyone that he felt was going to be affected by it. And then the government, both the city, New York City, and, and the federal government, and um, the ACT UP group, which you were involved with. And where was, I met Larry, yeah. Yeah, was finally able to do that. And I, I would say that, the, the you know, and they, they tried different things, but the event in St. Patrick's Cathedral, where they interrupted the mass and had uh, gel capsules with uh, red liquid inside that they popped and laid in the aisles and was the biggie that was like, whoa, finally, we're angry and um, we're fighting. Yeah, Larry loved that demonstration. There was a lot of debate about that, whether it was successful or not, because it had enraged so many people about going inside of a church. Larry said, are you kidding me? It got more attention than anything we've ever done. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Exactly, exactly. 
through that time, and, and Larry would come to all of the demonstrations, he'd come back and forth to act up. Of course, even act up, he felt needed to be harder and, and, and more fiery, but that was Larry. Yeah. But he'd come to the demonstrations back and forth. But in that time, he published uh, reports from the Holocaust, the story of an AIDS activist, was a lot of his writings and even yes. letters to the New York Times and elsewhere. Also wrote The Destiny of Me, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and took up where Ned Weeks, the character in The Normal Heart had left off and told us a lot about Larry's background, too, and his enormous struggle as a gay man. He had attempted suicide at Yale, his father and brother, both very homophobic. A lot that he had to deal with. Did he talk about that a lot? Yes. Well, as with, I'm sure you, myself included, we at times are with friends and we review, you know, background, history, school, life. So, yes, he talked about that. I find it interesting as part of our um, get back together. Larry called me in 1993. So we talked and he said, uh, my brother told me that um, I had really finally enough money. I've always wanted a house and I want you to make me a house. Would you be interested? That's how it started. And I said, sure. And that began the reconnection with Larry. So, and I I, rem- I remember that whole you know when he was building the house in Connecticut, and you became the architect. And we looked at houses because that's what he was thinking about, or land. And uh, he wanted it on water. Important. He was a cancer, and there were no really great properties on water in the autumn of 1993. And I said, you know, maybe you could wait. Real estate being what it is, next spring things will come along, or next fall. And he, of course, yelled at me on the street, you don't understand, I'm a dying man. I need this now. (laughs) Of course. For me, coming... Larry had been HIV positive since um, the 80s, and, and of course, he would go on to just have enormous it was amazing how many times he came close to something terrible happening but he he always just yeah he got out of it revved back out <laughs> um, well you know the you know the story though he goes connected to the act up activity he had met and they had attacked the NIH and Tony Fauci was the main target and People had become familiar. The tag part of ACT UP had started to you know, deal with and talk to the NIH. Peter Staley was involved with that. There were a number of people. And Fauci and Larry also talked and became acquainted, you know, became friendly. And there were some experimental things that they patched Larry into, and he was able to avoid the actual liver collapse until 1999, taking these drugs, at which point we were in London looking at a house that I had set up to see, and we're in a park with some friends outside the house, and he started to to somehow not feel well and said to me, I, we need to go back to the hotel. And we were leaving the next day. So we went back to the hotel, and um, he was in the bathroom for three hours or something. And he said, I want to go home, I want to go home. And having taken clients to Europe, I knew that America was always open. So I called uh, the Concorde in New York and got us on the uh, 9 o'clock plane, and we were in the next morning New York City by 11 o'clock. And he um, 
was told that he the liver was done, and he started to um, get the next condition, which is called ascites, and we started to shop for a new liver. Mm-hmm. But he did get, you know, really from 83 to 99, like 12 years. <laughs> right. Extra. Bonus. And and even premature reports of his death. <laughs> that well. happened in the hospital. That happened. In Pittsburgh. <laughs> um, <laughs> the bad act of infiltrated right. cork and changed the headline. <laughs> Which was um, funny. And like I said, in the hospital, but then he would revitalize, be back out. But it was when he was in the hospital in 2013 that you and he got married. I think the defensive marriage thing happened sometime, I don't remember the dates, maybe let's say the beginning of June or maybe even in May, you might know. And as, as soon as that happened, um, I was working in Dallas and Larry called and he said, "Okay, I've just talked to Eve Fremager. Eve Fremager was a judge. Uh, she always would say, well, you know, when it happens, I'll well, I'll marry you.' So it happened. So we had three dates. We picked a date, uh, and we were going to do it. It was July. after the Supreme Court had ruled the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional. Yeah. That was in June of that year. But still, New York didn't have marriage equality. But you married just in case. We married because of the Supreme Court. Yeah." And that meant we were going to get the same privileges that, and in fact, that saved his life because we did have the same privileges that the that the straights had enjoyed. Unfortunately, he didn't feel well, and I had gone, I'd flown out early in the morning. He took himself to NYU and complained about stomachache. And uh, I talked to the doctor. I said, I'll fly back. I don't think we should do anything. And Jeff Green said, I think we'll be okay. You know, we're just going to monitor this. So he didn't really get better. And the date that had been chosen to stand on the terrace overlooking Washington Square now came to pass, and he was in ICU. And when I came back, I had been involved with a client who was now going to build a house in Charlottesville, so my $3 million deal was going to happen. And Larry was uh, manic and was on the phone and in the hospital room in the ICU unit was talking to everyone and I was listening and the doc Jeff Green came in and I said Larry's invited about 20 people to come tomorrow to the wedding <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff said you know what so he said I have to check so he checked with the president and the president said I think that's okay as long as there's not too much noise it's good press <laughs> Now, you you talked about Anthony Fauci and his relationship with him. Of course, that goes way back to his yeah, writings and his, you know, speaking out forcefully against him in the 80s. Yes. But they developed that relationship. He pushed Fauci hard. Fauci yes. has talked about this. And he was continuing to push Fauci yes. uh, just in recent uh, weeks and months yes. over the coronavirus. Talk yes. about that. I got the virus. So I disappeared after St. Patrick's Day and then only reconnected and saw Larry the Friday before I then took him to Cornell Wild to fix what was wrong. You um, you battled coronavirus. Yes, but I didn't know I had it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. A strange series of circumstances, but yes, he started talking to Tony when the virus became known was coming to the United States was predicted to be this problem, not yet called a pandemic, 
and but he was still talking to him from the from the AIDS perspective and saying, you know, you should have done the work. You should have found a cure, uh, fixed this thing. The protease is a Band-Aid, you know, when pharmaceutical companies are more than happy to continue to sell drugs that people need, and there wasn't necessarily uh, a reason to have a cure. We can play with it. And that angered Larry. That made him crazy. He was on the protease as well. But, you know, what isn't known or isn't reviewed and people don't talk about in Indiana, how the NIH works or how these units work puts them in subjugation to the president. So Reagan didn't want things done, so they didn't do them. Funding wasn't given because that was who ran the NIH, and Tony followed the directions this past couple of months, Tony's, um, I think, you know, with, with his life at the, at the back end, and his kids are grown, and um, he has um, a responsible job, and this is the first time that he really has uh, forcefully spoken out against a president, against what we're supposedly supposed to be, you know, the protocol of today, don't talk, don't, don't let all this out. So that was good. That was, that was very positive. And, um, He's continued, and the president hasn't fired him. I mean, that was always the fear. If you push, Mm -hmm. you're going to get removed. So Tony was able to continue, and Larry would say, you know, well, who cares? Cancer research, that's not the same thing. Where's the money? Where's the money? You know, it just wasn't. Tony would say, well, there's no budget. Sorry, you know, $2,000 this year. There's so much more of Larry's work uh, we haven't discussed, and of course, the American people in 2015. <laughs> and he was working on a a second edition, a second uh, volume of that. But he also, uh, the, the thing I wanted to just, before we go, uh, touch on was that he was working on a play centered yeah. on HIV and COVID-19 pandemic together before he died. Talk a little bit about that. He felt there should be um, a trilogy of plays. So the destiny of me, where he was uh, thinking he was going to die, he didn't die. So he started to work on this a year ago as like the last hurrah, you know, and how it would be staged and what he would do. There was no, at that point, you know, pandemic. It was just kind of his own feelings, even connected to the American people and thinking that for all the effort, fighting with the New York Times, fighting with the New Yorker, you know, all the things he would send them, they wouldn't publish. All the things that he would fight about, they would ignore, which was for him also frustrating because he socially like knew David Remnick, but he, he kind of, you know, they would say, oh, it's Larry, you know, oh, it's Larry. Even Yale, uh, when he went to give his money and start the Larry Kramer Initiative, they didn't know who the fuck he was of his class. He was one of the probably most outstanding members. He and Bud Trillin and a couple of others. But they didn't know who he was. <laughs> was and he, I had encouraged him. I said, you want to go give your stuff to Yale? All right, get in the car and go there. So he drives over, and he comes back, and he's unhappy. And I said, you know, what's wrong? And he said, well, I hate to admit you were right. They didn't know who I was. They ignored me. <laughs> and so I said, well, then go back again. You know, call your brother, pull some strings, make this happen. So, so he did. So in this last sort of period of his life, the release of the book, The American People, it, it, it wasn't this runaway bestseller. All his stuff is still in print, ironically enough. 
you know, it's all well written. And the American people, like the other books, is well written. But how do you get gay people to read it? How do you get people? Plus, it's so big uh, that they had to split it in two parts. And through the period when we did get married and the book was still there, but not 100% completed, the whole goal was to get him out of the hospital and have him complete the first half. We, we, mm-hmm. I worked with Will Schwalbe, who's um, his, um, who you know, who um, ran uh, That's at right. one point Hyperion and, Press. And, and a very uh, we, good friend of Larry's for many yeah, years. Yes. Yes, and so um, we sort of worked out how it could be split, where it could be split, and um, even had a, a what-if plan that it could still be published um, in some form. And he made it. He got out of the hospital. But that was at a point where I had paid aides round the clock to get him up and do things, which were now possible because we were married when the hospital staff would would say, well, you know, who are you? I said, I'm his husband. Get him out of bed and let's make him move around, which we did. We dragged Mm -hmm. him down the hall. We brought him back. We sat him in a chair. We put him in the bed, all of which couldn't happen this last time. That's why he died. Right. So disillusioned, he said, the pandemic really affected it. The the pandemic affected it. Yes. I'm going to write about my disillusion, my, my unhappiness with where are the gay activists? Why isn't anybody fighting? I've spent all this time, invested all this energy, and people aren't responding. They're, they're, they're complacent. They're not pushing gay. You know, let's, let's see. Is it all for naught? Is this how every person finally who gets to be old looks back and says, did I waste my entire life? You know? That's, mm. that's what he was having questions about, which maybe is normal. Maybe that's wow. what happens to all of us. Maybe that's all, that'll happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he, he was uh, just an enormous inspiration to me. And I, I said this to you uh, a week ago, and uh, I, I always thought about it, and this is very selfish, but I always thought about how no matter what I've written or said, no matter how outrageous it was, Larry always said something more outrageous. So, <laughs> yes. so I always felt protected. I always felt like, well, there's always Larry. I mean, he and, wrote uh, this seething <laughs> email to uh, Jordan Roth. Do you know who Jordan Roth is? Jordan Roth mm. is Steve Roth's son, uh-huh. Daryl Roth's son. And he, Larry was angry at Steve Roth because he supported Mr. Trump. And felt that Jordan should attack his father, or Jordan should do this. And, and I said, you can't do that, you know. Jordan is his own person. Jordan needs to do so. I made him send another one apologizing and saying, I'm sorry I overreacted. But that's Larry. Right. I'm gay. <laughs> I'm, gla- so, I'm, but, I'm, gla- <laughs> I'm glad he was doing all that right up uh, until, uh, you know, he could. Uh, that's, yes. that's great to hear. And he, um, it, it never stopped. That's what's been so hard. Like he wasn't, he wasn't done, Michelangelo. Right, he just right. Wasn't done. No. Well, he was enormous and did a lot, <laughs> a lot more than than the vast, vast majority of people. And we're so thankful for that, and so thankful that you have opened up and told us about so much about him that a lot of people didn't know, and it is 
something I plan to be committed to, uh, making sure that uh, we keep focusing on Larry's legacy and his memory and, and all of the great things he has done and the powerful impact he's had on, on this whole community. So thank you for, for well, joining us Well, you're welcome. I hope, I hope this uh, does keep him alive. He's even fighting the building on Fifth Avenue, which has put plaques up. Bella Absog is there, and uh, on the other side, when Larry was in the hospital in 2013, uh, they put Koch's plaque, which hacked up, protested. So he wants to be, if they're going to put a plaque, he wants to be on the Washington Square side where the black door is, and mm-hmm. nowhere near Mayor Koch. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> uh, anyway. David Webster, thank you so much uh, for, for uh, giving us time today. Oh, it's really a pleasure. It. Pleasure. Thank you very much.